The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. February 4th, 2024, The Dangers of Discontentment, Part 2. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Good morning. You know, we're recording this, and, and that's marked for perpetuity on online. It's going to be posted there for all to hear. shouldn't be turning it on yet. Class started you. That's too late. It's already started. If you want to talk about your... Go ahead. You're being recorded. Leave it at that. All right. Let me open with some prayer, if I if I might. Father, thank you for a, thank you for a, a day that is filled with rain and and your provision, your blessing upon us. Um, thank you for the the saints that get to assemble this morning for Sunday school and for church. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our pastor and the hard work that he's put in preparing a sermon for us later. I just would ask that you would um, encourage our conversation and be encouraged by our conversation, that you would be pleased by it and that we would be able to walk away this morning a little more, um, maybe even a little more sanctified than we were before we started. So I just thank you for these ladies and the the heart they have to study your word and to um, look more into this issue of discontentment. And I would just ask for my part that you would bless my words and and that you would give me the the right words to say that I might honor you and and bless you for all for your praise and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week we started a conversation about discontentment, what it is, what it isn't, what causes it. And uh, anybody remember how we define discontentment? We circled around it a lot, and, and we kind of, I kind of defined it in different ways, um, different perspectives perhaps. Anybody remember what, how we define it? It doesn't have to be word perfect. Just, or, or give me your impression of what discontentment might be. Almost like a rebellion against God's sovereignty. It is. It's totally a rebellion against God's sovereignty. God's sovereign care for us, right? What else? Well, it would be a lack of gratefulness. Yeah. It's it's profoundly reflected in a lack of gratitude, a lack lack of gratefulness. For what? What are we not being grateful for? Well, just what God is doing in our lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what are we not grateful for? Well, a little bit of everything, probably. Um, we're not responding favorably to God because He is good. And whatever He allows or does for us is for our good. Yeah. It's a lack of trust, too. Totally a lack of trust. If we, had a, if we really had a grasp on God's sovereign care for us, and, and uh, we truly trusted Him for all of the, the vagaries of life, all of the, the, the things that come our way, then we would always have the settled heart of contentment, wouldn't we? We would be happy with what we have. We would be joyful all the time because our joy is rooted in the Lord and what He has done for us. And uh, our discontentment grows when we feel like what we have is not what is best for us, right? It's a dissatisfaction with our possessions, our status, our circumstances. I can be, I can be discontent because I'm not getting to serve in the ways I want to serve, mm-hmm. right? Even, even within the realm of the church and Christian service, it sounds really good that, that you might want to serve somewhere, right. but if your heart isn't right or you're not getting what you think you want or deserve in the area of service, then you can grow discontent. Discontent with the leadership, I was just going to say, we can even be discontent when we've said we'll do something. Like, we've volunteered to do it. And then the day that it comes, it's like, why did I say that I would do this? Or, you know, the discontentment hits because new circumstances have come down. Yeah. We can be discontent in so many things. In, in virtually everything, in every sphere of life, we can be discontent. Ab- yep. Absolutely. We, we're discontent because we're focused on self. You know, our desires are our own feelings. It's a very, very selfish disorder. Uncomfortable or unhappy. 
for you to be discontent. In all circumstances. And this is why Paul had to learn how to be content, because it's so easy for us. We have a propensity toward discontentment, to grumbling in our hearts when things aren't going our way. We're not getting what we want. It's very self-focused. Thank you, my dear. It's very self-focused. It's very oriented toward us. And, and it's all me, 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 isn't it? It's the unholy trinity right there. Me, myself, and I. It's all about us. Yeah. It makes me think of Eeyore. Eeyore. Oh, it's me. I mean, I just crack up because there's really good. You've met people that are Eeyores. And I had a son-in-law that was an Eeyore. And it didn't matter what was going on. He always found something wrong. Eventually, he got discontent with our daughter and wanted to divorce her. So, but yeah, just um, discontentment is, you don't like being around people that are discontent because they're, they're Debbie Downers. It's true, but I, I would argue that, that discontentment runs so deep that uh, it's not just the Eeyores, it's everybody else. We're all discontent somewhere and somehow. But, but certainly the, the Eeyores are the ones that really exemplify that, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, for the Christian, discontentment is rooted in a failure to trust in God's sovereign goodness. Jeremiah Burroughs, I gave you this definition last week of, of contentment. His definition of contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in all conditions or every condition. What do you think he means? By the way, here's his book, and I, I might have mentioned this last week. Um, if you see this book and you want to buy the book, The Rare Jewel of Discontentment, don't buy this one. Very difficult to read. It's, it's, he's a Puritan writer. He lived between 1599 and 1646, and this is the original English that he wrote. In fact, I'm surprised his sweat isn't on this book. It's that, it's that original and faithful to the original text. So if you like to be tortured, buy this one. If you are, are like me and want an easier read, this one is really good. This one is the 17th century classic made reader friendly so we like that reader friendly is good so so anyway he says that it's a, a gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition so what do you think he means when he talks about submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal what does that mean I think of disposal I think of trash Okay. That's not the way the word is used, is it? So, can you, say, can you read that? Say that definition. Yes, it, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. What does that mean? Used for whatever God has for you, like being at somebody's disposal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think also, like, recognizing that God is a good father before we even start looking at the, his disposal to us, remembering who he is, and that helps ground us in the fact he is our, our loving Heavenly Father. <coughs> what he's giving to us is ultimately good, because he's good. Yes, really good, because we, 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 we frame things, don't we, in a certain way. And, and our understanding of things is based on how we've framed it. I remember uh, reading about the study they did where they, they showed a, a vehicle accident, right? This car rolled into another car and, and, and crashed into it. And then they asked the student, the, the, uh, the, the subjects, a question. And the question was simply, how fast was the vehicle going when it hit the other car? But they, the way they framed the question differed, and that was really what they're studying, is the effect of language, in this case, or framing, on our understanding of a circumstance. And so they asked some students, how, far was, how fast was the car going when it bumped into the car in front of it? How fast was the car going when it collided with the car in front of it? How fast was the car going when it crashed into the vehicle in front of it? And, and as you could imagine, the, the, those respondents who responded to the bumped question framing, they estimated a significantly lower speed, but they all saw, they all saw the same film. Yeah. They all saw the same footage. They just their understanding of it was different based on how they framed it. So coming at it with a with the right frame first is really important, isn't it? Because we, we need to we can see God working and we can see God, for example, annihilating whole nations in the Old Testament. And if you frame your frame if your frame of reference for who God is, is God is an ogre and, and, and is and is um, 
out for out for blood, then you're going to interpret that differently to our God is a holy God, a perfect God, a just God. Totally mis, uh, uh, changes the way we frame and think about who God is in that context, right? And that's going to affect who we are and how we think. So well, it's really good. And we in the Old Testament, sometimes it doesn't seem because he doesn't really. Mm-hmm. When they go through, um, when Joshua becomes leader and they start to... Um, I can't think of the word, but when they're taking over different cities and destroying them, essentially, like they're annihilating these. It's genocide, right? Yeah, these cultures and these these cities, and it doesn't seem much different than what the other, what the cities themselves are doing towards other cities or, or areas or what have. But when you, but you have to have that framework that well, God is the cosmic judge, right? Mm-hmm. Overall, and that he is sovereign, and that what he does is good. Um, it also makes me think of what the definition that you read made me think of um, Job in the sense that he says that God gives, but he also takes away, mm-hmm. which we often like when he gives. But it's really hard sometimes when he takes away, right? And so we have to remind ourselves that God is good and have that perspective. Because he also talked about how I think it was Job in the like same uh, the same chapter, but just that God's ways are higher than our ways, and who is He to even um, I don't know pretend like He is God? I guess essentially I'm paraphrasing greatly, but. <laughs> then how did Job finish that statement? God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah. yeah, He was able to celebrate God even in the midst of terrible suffering. Because yeah. yeah. his frame was, was oriented toward God and his goodness, ultimately. Although he failed in that. Eventually he failed in that. Um, although he was also restored. so Which is another reflection of God's goodness. That he would take a, a, a failed and humbled servant and restore him to a greater place than he was when he started. Which is which is sweet. So, so we have the satisfaction if we're content with God's plans and purposes for our lives. Discontentment then is the opposite. It's a dissatisfaction with God's wise and fatherly disposal. That's God's actively revealed will for your life. When God is, you know, He's revealing His will for your life through His Word and through life, right? And and so as we experience God's will for us. Um, we're satisfied in it or we're dissatisfied with that. If you're single and, and can't find a mate to marry somebody to marry and, and you see this all the time with singles. They get as they get older and older and older they come become dissatisfied with what God has for them. And they become at some point they become even bitter if they if they're not able to find the life partner that the heart desires. Right? And so that's something that God wants to work on in their hearts. That he wants to grow them in that area so that they're able to be content even in their singleness. And I've seen time and time again, same with pregnancy. You see it over and over again. You know, the lady that can't get pregnant and she, she fights with God and she shakes her fist at God and she gets angry at God and she's bitter and, and, and she goes through all these hoops and jumps to get pregnant and she can't get pregnant and then finally the husband and wife decide, you know what, this isn't God's will for us. I'm okay with that. God is good. Let's adopt. Or let's be satisfied with our children. And guess what happens? Or in by a boat. That's what happened. My sister, she bought a boat. And then they get pregnant, right? They're satisfied with what God has for them. You know, and then, and then God, you can see clearly God brought them through that trial. And, and this is what God wanted. God wanted them to be content and satisfied no matter what their circumstances are. So... So submitting to God's wise and fatherly disposal is being satisfied with it, satisfied with his plans and purposes for us. And discontentment is is not being satisfied with his plans and his purposes for us. Discontentment builds, writes Jerry Bridges, as ongoing circumstances present trials to our faith. It builds as ongoing circumstances present trials to our faith. This is another book that I've been using a lot for studying discontentment, trusting God, Jerry Bridges. I'm sure you've all read this, or you probably have, because it's such a mainstay in the industry when it comes to um, the sovereignty of God. I, I would recommend, if I might be so bold, ladies, to study this book. Go through it word by word, chapter by chapter, sentence by sentence, and study it together. I think it's, a, it's, it's one of the best treatises on the sovereignty of God and trusting Him that I've ever ever read. And I've read quite a few on sovereign, His sovereignty, and it's just excellent, excellent book. 
So ongoing circumstances present trials to our faith. They present trials to our outlook. Do they need to be major things? Do they, are they always going to be mountains? Major problems that cause us to stumble, cause us to become discontent, cause us to become angry and bitter. I'm seeing some shaking heads. They don't, right? They don't need to be major things. In fact, I would submit that for most of us, they're not major things at all. For most of us, they're probably little things that are accumulating over time. Or they're little things that, that are chronic that won't go away. It's that thorn in the side. It's that, it's that foot that hurts all the time. It's that chronic pain that isn't a major mountain, but it hurts all the time. It won't. The pain won't go away. And, and over time, we become discontent. They don't need to be mountains. And that's why it's such an insidious problem because we all have little things that we deal with and little things that won't go away. Circumstances could be significant, certainly, but they can also be minor stressors that accumulate and, 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 and won't go away over an extended period of time. It's that minor annoyance that constantly digs at your flesh that often causes the greatest grief, like the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was exactly, but more than likely it wasn't a major issue, but it was an ongoing annoyance that kept and humble and dependent on God. It's insidious because it can often be based on these minor irritants. But when they're left, when it's left unchecked, when that minor irritant doesn't go away and we don't deal with it, then that blooms or blossoms into anger, which then entrenches itself in bitterness. My bride is going to be talking about bitterness in a few weeks. So, I hope. So... What starts as a relatively minor thing can become a really, really major stumbling block to your sanctification. That's the problem with discontentment. That's the problem with not dealing with those little things right away. I was talking to Houston this morning. Can I name him? We're being recorded. About marriage and just how dealing with those little things as they come is so important in marriage because if you don't deal with them, they accumulate. You've all heard the straw that broke the camel's back analogy. And it's going to accumulate. And then one day Janelle is going to do something really minor and he's going to to look like a complete jerk. He's going to explode. He's going to have a meltdown. And, and everyone's going to be left scratching their head wondering, what's, what's wrong with him? And, and this happens in marriage all the time, doesn't it? When we allow little things to accumulate over time, we don't deal with them, we explode, and, and, and we're left looking like something's wrong with us because we haven't dealt with all those little things. All those little things need to be dealt with as they come up. Otherwise, you're just hurting your, your, your spouse. So we spent a lot of time considering the sovereignty of God, and we've already answered the question why, because God is in control of all things. God is sovereignly over all things. And so when hard things happen and we suffer in some way or another, and we're dealing with trials of all kinds, when, when we have our understanding, our theology set right, then we can know that God is in charge. He's still on his throne. He hasn't abdicated his throne. Joseph and Job both suffered horribly, but they responded differently to their suffering. Right? How did Joseph respond to his suffering? He'd gone through all of the stuff he'd gone through and his brothers came to him at the end there in, in uh, Genesis 50. And how did he respond? Well, he said what man devised for evil, God, you know, designed for good. And so we were just reading about that the other day, that very passage and area. But literally, he said, you guys wanted what was bad, but, you know, it's all good because here I am today to be able to provide for the nation mm-hmm. because God used me in those circumstances to be second to Pharaoh. What a great response yeah. this guy had. I mean, I didn't see him every day while he was sitting there, yeah. you know, dealing with stuff. I didn't see him when he had the flu and he was sick and he was grumpy, but yeah. overall, I mean, as far as we know, and all that, that's all that matters is what God has told us, he responded positively. What about Job? Job initially responded well, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. Right. Blessed be God's name. But he comes to this point in Job 35 where he starts to say, well, wait a minute. Yeah. If I had an audience with God, I'd be telling him what he did wrong. He's misunderstood me. He's misused me. He, he's, he's wronged him, and, and here's why. So he would he would get to that point. You know, thank, thankfully he came around after God rebuked him and that wonderful divine uh, sarcasm. But we started out on this topic of sovereignty because it's because discontentment is rooted in a failure to understand and appropriate the promises that God has given to us. That God is good. He's sovereignly good. This whole whole book's written on the kindness of God, the goodness of God. You'll see them in all of the good attributes of God books. Is is a chapter on the goodness of God. 
Who's not only good in his character, but he's also good towards us. Yes. Is it in Romans where it talks about that he works all things together for the good mm-hmm. of him? So trusting in his sovereignty includes that when something that seems difficult or hard can also be worked towards our good. Like Joseph, was, that's a great example, when he said, you know, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And so he not only meant it for good for Joseph, but he also meant it for good for Israel, too. And so it had, he had a much bigger plan in it. And we don't always see that. And we might not even see the good that it is towards us, either. Yeah, Naomi didn't see that. Naomi was was completely twisted. At the end of of, of Ruth chapter one, he, yeah. you know, he, she's telling her, her daughters in law to go home. Yeah. Don't even stay with me because God has dealt with me harshly. She understood. I made this point last week. She understood God's sovereignty. She understood that God was in control of all things. Yeah. God just wasn't being kind to her. God wasn't sovereignly good to her. She didn't see the big picture. Right. She believed that the Lord had turned against her, and and that's that's a really clear picture. And she came around eventually. And in fact, if you look at the end of Ruth, you know this. It's not. It's not. Ruth isn't the, the main star in the end of, in, in, at the end of the book. It's, it's Naomi. Naomi. Ruth isn't the mother of, of 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 all these people that led to to David, that led to Christ. Naomi was the grandmother. Yeah. It's a totally different framing. So it just shows how important she is, but how important it is to remember God's sovereign care for us. And oh, I was just going to say, um, I think like going when we go through difficult circumstances. That's really an occasion for that temptation mm-hmm. to really doubt that God is good. And I remember having to uh, talk to somebody about that several years back, going through difficult things in our life, is because I was really struggling with that concept. If, if God is good, why is this happening? You know, and it was really, I think, in God's kindness an opportunity that he taught me through that, although it was difficult, to respond in faith to him without doubting. But it was hard. Mm -hmm. Like that was, I was Naomi. (laughs) Isn't that interesting how quick we are to blame God for things? Yeah. And like I would have never thought that, but I mean, those circumstances churn up things in our hearts sometimes. Mm -hmm. We don't even know we're there. Yep. So I think... It was helpful to recognize that, okay, this is actually an opportunity that I can respond in faith to God instead of doubting Him. Yeah. Amen. Having that temptation to be discontent and distrustful, you know, all those things that, even though I don't understand it. But I, I know I know you well enough to know that you're grounded well in theology. You've got you've you've read your Bible. You 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 have a fairly good grasp of God's sovereign care and sovereignty in your life. And yet still, you came to that place of blaming God for your circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's why it's so important to get a good grasp on it. Because we're when we're in difficult long term chronic difficulty and suffering, we're going to slide somewhat probably. Um, the, the question is, wh- what's your baseline? Where are you starting from? Are you going to slide all the way into you know? heaven forbid apostasy or something or are you going to slide back a little bit but still be clinging to God's truth I talk about you know that white knuckle clinging clinging to God's word desperately because we are we have to we feel like you know if we didn't then then all would be lost and so we cling to what we know to be true even though we don't feel it maybe in the in the moment you know Phil had talked about talked told me once about um, I was dealing with something and he was talking about how you know it takes a while sometimes for our emotions to catch up with our theology and I thought that was really good you know, it takes a while sometimes we'll, we'll get caught unawares or we'll, we'll start to question things and it takes a little bit sometimes for us to you know get back to that place where our theology is, in, is grounded and we know we know what's true but we start to lose uh, perspective on it sometimes I mean ultimately it is from God right I mean what is that psalm that says you know how what can I say you've done this to me you know mm. um, ultimately it is God's hand of discipline and and like um, I was reading you know, it's like a parent, if, if we only got the good things in life, it's like the parent just giving ice cream to the child all the time. He knows it's not good for us. So he doesn't do that. Yeah. And so he gives us those hardships to grow us and to make us healthy and spiritually. And so, I mean, ultimately everything is from the hand of God. And so when we say, God, you did this, you know, like you are doing this. It's not always just consequences from bad behavior. It's just... Our, uh, I was reading in Exodus and, and 
right after they crossed the Red Sea with the water wall, God just brought them out of slavery. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other side, it wasn't long before they started complaining Rumbling. and grumbling Rumbling. about food, about water, <laughs> about everything. All they had to do is turn around and look at this pillar of fire right there, right before them. And yet, they're grumbling and complaining. You brought us out here to kill us. Mm-hmm. They had a first-hand connection yeah. with, 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 with Moses and, and through him with God. They could see God through that pillar of fire. Yeah. And, and, and yet, and the cloud that led them, and, and yet they, they were so quick to, to, to challenge God's goodness and to question him. <laughs> Absolutely. What was the, do you, Jennifer, do you remember the, the context in the bitterness book on, the, on that movie we watched last night, what he was writing about specifically? Yeah, but I can't tell you because it goes into my teaching. <laughs> okay, got it. All right. Very good. We watched the movie last night. It was about a guy that was enslaved. He was sold into slavery from the north to the south. And, and really a good movie. There were some gaps in the middle of it that didn't make any sense, I'll say. But because I fell asleep. But it's still a good movie. But you wonder, how, does God, how is God using circumstances like that? When a true story about a guy that's sold into slavery and he's in slavery. He's a noble, not, maybe not a nobleman, but a, a guy of fairly high high character in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Oh. And, and, and he's, sorry. <laughs> Philippians 4, Paul tells us, Philippians 4.11, that, that he had to, that, that contentment is not a natural condition. He had to learn how to be content, right? And he had to learn because uh, we're quick to accuse people or accuse God. We're quick to doubt him. We're prone to sin, right? You can, yeah. you can testify to that with that situation you were dealing with. We, we are prone to sin. It's, it's our natural inclination. Well, and he allows us to go through things to root that stuff out. Like you said, you didn't even know that was in your heart. Well, what does the Bible say about our heart? It's desperately wicked Mm -hmm. now and can't be trusted. So God allows these things to root them out in us. Mm -hmm. I was a terribly... um, Naughty? Well, yeah, that too. um, I was just helping you out. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was not a very compassionate person years ago because I was always very healthy and I just, I had a friend that was sickly. And I'm like, come on, you know, wine, wine, wine. And so God said, hmm, we'll deal with this one. So I had gallbladder disease. And I would have projectile vomiting. It was for about six weeks until I could have surgery. And I'll tell you what, that's the first time I ever experienced real depression. Mm. I hated it, but it was so good for me. Because in the end, I became a much more compassionate person. And now you're the nice, sweet, happy person we know today. Just wonderful. (laughs) But really, it did make a difference. So it was good. God uses the circumstances, brings the circumstances, the hard things for our good. And yeah. for Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine for for our good. And He defines that as growing in Christ likeness, yeah. in, in sanctification. So, yeah. absolutely. And if you're if you're sitting with somebody who's in a difficult marriage and they're 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 broken, they're 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 crying, they're 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 hurting because of the um, difficulties in their marriage. They're at the end of their rope. You know, I'm not going to sit down with that person and beat them over the head with God's sovereignty necessarily. So, you know, telling somebody who's broken hearted, yeah. well, God is sovereign over this. You know God is sovereign, so stop it. Just, you just, this is a failure to believe and trust in God's sovereignty. What's wrong with you? I mean, that, that's kind of my... I, it's true, right? It's true that God is sovereign. And so if we had a perfect grasp on God's sovereignty, that is where we would go. But it's not where we go because that is, a, that is not a kind and compassionate way to help somebody through a, a, a broken heart. We have that tendency too, right? In terms of, come on, buck up. Let's get through this. Get, get a dog and move on with your life. Yeah, yeah. The fact is, God is sovereign, and He's sovereign over the good and the bad, right? But, but the fact, that fact alone doesn't help a hurting soul. We need to be cushioning or couching that within the framework of God's sovereign care and love for us. Well, yeah, because we're, gonna, we're supposed to build one another up in love, yeah. and our words are supposed to be redemptive and not destructive. Yeah, I briefly counseled somebody who had gone through a very, very traumatic event involving death of somebody else, and... Uh, 
super nice guy, really nice. But I, I say briefly because he he came from a charismatic background, and, and he could not be, I, he could not believe that God would be sovereign over this person's death. He could not believe that God would be able to use it, let alone that God would sovereignly ordain it to happen. That was just unthinkable to him. He could not bring bring himself to that point where he could allow. And I knew it was going to go in a bad direction when I asked him if he had done anything about, you know, if, you know, prayerfully done anything to help him with his struggling in the first place. And, and he said, well, I was trying to look up things about death and, and, and all I saw online was, was, was stories about God's plan, being God's plan. And that was unthinkable to him. And, and it was really tragic. It was sad because, you know, we believe, I, I hope you believe, that God is sovereign over death. And God is sovereign over even those kinds of difficult things. And God has a plan. And so... Psalm 139. Yeah. He had the sense of helplessness mm-hmm. and hopelessness and fatalism that broke that left him brokenhearted. And, and there was nothing he could do about it. There's nothing that the charismatic movement could do to help him in that, which is really sad. Jerry Bridges writes that adversity and its accompanying emotional pain comes in many forms. Some pain is sudden, traumatic, and devastating. He writes, other adversities are chronic, persistent, and seemingly designed to wear down our spirits over time. It's that child that won't submit. It's it's the the chronic pain that won't go away. It's the spouse that isn't leading his family well or, or is is not loving you the way that you feel you should be loved or need to be loved. But Bridges draws this really helpful distinction, I think, between obeying God and trusting God. You see, that there's a difference there, right? Different words, different meanings. Obedience is relatively easy for us, right? As Christians who trust in God's Word, who read God's Word, who, who know God's Word, you know, God explicitly tells us what he expects of us. You know, so obedience is worked out within these well-defined boundaries or parameters that he gives us in his word. And so it's relatively simple. God tells us what he expects of us. We read his word, we respond in obedience, hopefully. At least that's the ideal, right? But trusting God is worked out in an arena, he says, that has no boundaries. Trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We have no idea how long that adverse circumstance is going to last. We don't know. We don't know when our child, if ever, is going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We don't know. We don't know if the Lord has ever saved our children until there's fruit that, that establishes it one way or another. We don't know if that pain is ever going to go away. Trusting God is hard because we don't know how long our adverse circumstances are going to last or how painful they're going to become. And so trusting Him in the adversities of life can be very, very difficult. The Israelites have been arguing with God. Was that you, you, you that brought up the Israelites? No, it was, it was you that brought up the Israelites. They've been arguing with God, right? They, this is the, the story of, of the judges, right? They're going back and forth, back and forth, arguing against God, responding to His grace with rebellion, accusing Him of failing to provide for them, to nurture them. Asaph wrote in Psalm 78, verse 19 and following, he said these words, They, the Israelites, spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Meaning, can He feed us? He could he could strike the rocks so the water gushed out and streams overflowed, but can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? They were grumbling in their hearts because they were hungry. I could identify with that. I grumble when I'm hungry. I, but they're, they're questioning God's provision, not just his provision, but how he's chosen to provide, right? And so they say in verse 21, Therefore, Asaph writes, When the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. I would say that's unthinkable. Who could ever dream of such a thing? But that's, that's our propensity, right? It's, 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 it's you know, I, I would suggest if you would say, well, if I was Adam, or in your case, Eve in the garden, I never would have eaten the apple. God told us not to. I, I, I'm faithful. I'm obedient. Well, newsflash, you would have munched down on that thing eventually. Probably, maybe just as quick, quicker than Eve did. We, we are all susceptible to the sin in our hearts. They did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. They were the recipients of God's wrath because they had rebelled against Him. And that rebellion was based on a, on a fundamental lack of trust in His provision and His sovereign goodness. Isaiah quotes Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 38. Hezekiah had been sick. You might remember the story. He had been sick. To the point of death, Isaiah came to tell him, good news, you're dying. Yeah. You know, that's the, the cheerful job of the prophets in the Old Testament. Hezekiah, you're dying. 
you got to get your house in order, he said. And Hezekiah turned to the Lord and begged him for healing. He said, just a little bit longer, Lord, just a little bit longer. And he was broken by his sickness. And, and verse 3 of Isaiah 38 says that he wept bitterly. He, was, he wept bitterly. He was broken. Not bitter in the sense of the bitterness my wife is going to talk about, but just a bitter weeping in his heart. And, and so Hezekiah wrote a hymn that recounted his experience. And uh, it's not in the canon of Scripture, but Isaiah quotes it in chapter 38. He says um, that the hymn starts out bleakly. He talks about being consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of his years. Drama, right? I'm, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my life. You know, I'm miserable. I'm, I'm bitter. I'm never going to recover from this. And my wife's not, life's not going to be very long anyway because Isaiah told me I'm dying. I'm going to die. And he gives these metaphors that reflected his belief that God had become his enemy. God was his enemy. But then he comes to this point that he recognizes that his difficult circumstances were actually for his own good. God was using them. He writes in verse 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you, God, have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. In love, you have, you love me. And in your love, you have delivered me from, from this death. Hezekiah acknowledged that ultimately even his bitter suffering had been for his good. He got it. He figured it out eventually. And that's what Romans 8.28 affirms, isn't it? That God had graciously delivered him from his sickness at exactly the right time. God wasn't late. He wasn't running on some other schedule other than his perfect timing. Hezekiah had wanted to be delivered sooner, but he wasn't. But at some point, eventually, in God's perfect timing, he was. He struggled with this this trusting in God's sovereign goodness. David wrote in Psalm 52 that the goodness of God endures continually. God's goodness is everlasting. He's faithful in it. He wrote in Psalm 145, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. All his works. Does that include the good stuff? It does, right? Does that include the bad stuff over here? Yeah. Absolutely. Hezekiah went on to give birth to Manasseh, the worst king in Israel's history, and he did it in that 15-year time span that God allotted him. Yeah, he did. And yet, we can say that God is good. God is sorry, and, and including the suffering that, that the people under Manasseh dealt with and went through, right? Even, even with Emperor Nero and the, and the unthinkable suffering that the, the Roman church went through under Nero, we, we can say that God is sovereignly good even in those kinds of circumstances. God is good. Difficult things happen. Difficult things happen. Perhaps it's a painful marriage, rebellious children, fears. How are you going to pay your next mortgage payment? And instead of meditating on God's steadfast love and goodness, we allow discontentment to grow in our hearts. We allow doubt to bloom. The psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verse 9, He satisfies, God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. But instead of resting in that, in God's sovereign kindness, we become restless and unsettled. I made the point last week that this, this, this discontentment is a disease of relativity. <laughs> because suffering doesn't always bring discontentment. A lack of something doesn't always bring discontentment. We could have more than we need and still be discontent. How we, how we feel about our circumstances is relevant, relative to our perception of reality. Discontentment is not really about our possessions or our relationships, is it? Uh, discontentment is not about our circumstances, our possessions, but rather it's about our interpretation of those things in light of our expectations. It's about me. I want more. I want this. I want that. I want something else other than what God has given me. That's why it's never enough. The people that It's never want, enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. Just one dollar more. One, one dollar more, said uh, Rockefeller, right, yeah. I think. Yeah. He was asked, how, how, how much is, 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 enough. is enough? And he said, one dollar more. Yep. He was the richest man in the world at the time, yeah. It's a perceived lack of sufficiency, believing we don't have enough. Ultimately, we're saying that God's provision is not enough. We may even believe, like Naomi did, that God had withheld his hand of blessing from us. And we forget David's words in Psalm 9, that those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. That's a wonderful promise, but it's easy to forget in our furnace of affliction. 
So I would ask you to ask yourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You're welcome to say something if you want. But I would, I would ask you to ask yourselves, have you ever dealt with this kind of discontentment, this kind of feeling of being forsaken? Have you ever been in a place in life where you felt like God has forgotten you, that God has forsaken you, that God brought you through a difficult time? And brought you out the other side of that difficult time. Maybe you're in that difficult time now, and you're and you're and you're desperately hoping that God will bring you out of that today. And maybe you've even lived, lost hope that God will redeem you from that, bring you out of that. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter five, if you would. We're going to look at some of the symptoms of discontentment. Now that I'm done introducing the topic for the week. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 Can somebody read verse 10 for us? We're going to find some of the symptoms of discontentment He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income This too is vanity So what in that verse indicates or will be a symptom of discontentment? Love of, love of money but it's bigger than money it's not just money that would be the illustration never being satisfied but it's a lack of satisfaction isn't it or, or it's dissatisfaction we're not satisfied with what our lot is what God has for us absolutely the one who loves money won't be satisfied with what he has that was Rockefeller that was all kinds of um, all kinds of people um, because the money we have will never be enough but we're discontent when we're dissatisfied with what God has for us that's discontentment what about verses 11 and 12 can somebody read 11 and 12 for us what chapter are you in Ecclesiastes 5 oh that's a good verse that's a good chapter too yeah when goods increase they increase to eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats a little or much but the full stomach of the rich not let him sleep. Hmm. I love that passage. Verse 12 is really sweet. So, so what is the symptom there of discontentment? It's not food. What is he saying? The full stomach. What does he mean by that? I mean, it's a metaphor. That's being satisfied. <clears throat> Just wanting to eat more. If you have more food, you're just going to eat more. Yeah. Eat more and eat more. So if you have, if you've been given it, you just want to eat more and then, or whatever, take more, and then you're you don't feel good. I don't know. Well, it's it's idolatry mm-hmm. because idolatry is the cheap imitation of God. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to satisfy, right? Yeah. Right. And we're we're He's already rich. He's just striving after more. Striving after more, yeah. I think about, like, feeding the teenagers. Like, you put out food. It doesn't matter how much you put out, it will all be gone. And at what point are they actually satisfied? You know, like, so, you know, it doesn't matter if you put out 15 pizzas. They're going to eat them all. If you put out five pizzas, are they satisfied after five? Probably, you know, but, like, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody in our family who shall go nameless because Zachary would be horrified went to Oz last night with a group of boys. One of them was getting married, and and um, so young man, I should call him young man. And and his joke, he joked that that equipped that the uh, the staff at, at Oz is an all you can eat Korean barbecue place, oh. and and he quipped that. Um, oh. They, 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 were hard, they, they walk in the door and you know they just want to shut down the kitchen and go home at that point. They can eat a tremendous amount of food. So at one point he said they stopped serving them. And, they, and then they got them going again. Oh my goodness. The discontent person is restless. They're restless. They can't settle their heart or sleep the sweet sleep of the innocent. The innocent, in this case, the laborer is the innocent one. The, the, the wealthy person is, is, is full of everything he could ever want, but that's just keeping him awake at night. It's not allowing him to rest in God's sovereign care. What about verses 13 through 17? Can someone read that for us? There is a secret or a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, Mm. to go as he came. 
and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. Did you say through 17? Yeah. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Hmm. That's good. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, by the way, is a great counseling book. So if, you, if you're looking for a Bible book to read as a class, Ecclesiastes is fantastic. It's really, really good. So this guy is generally unhappy. He's dissatisfied with God's ways, and he's sinfully discontent. Like I said, discontentment, when it's left unchecked, leads to other sins, including bitterness, covetousness, covetousness and anger. We're quick to blame God. We talked about that. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. We're blaming God. May it never be, but that's what we do. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, he himself tempts no one. We see that in Genesis 3, when Adam said, why? He said, it's that woman you gave me. He's blaming the woman, he's blaming Eve, and he's blaming God for it. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Discontentment, says James, is caused by the passions that are at war within us. He says, James 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, there's the discontentment, right? So you what? You murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. Covetousness is another manifestation of discontentment. So you fight and you quarrel. Romans 1.21, it's a significant passage on the root of sin and the development of impurity in our hearts. Paul writes that ungodly men were growing in the foolishness of their hearts. He says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They did this because they didn't think God's provision was good enough. They wanted something else. And God, he says, gave them up to their lusts of their, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them. Themselves. Fine, you want you you want it? Go ahead. He's given them up to it. Gave them up to their dishonorable passions and left them to their debased minds and wickedness. There's this continuum to sin, isn't there? That Paul, um, not Paul James, talks about the quarrels and the fights, the, the passions that are at war within us, that manifest themselves in anger and murder and coveting, fighting, quarreling. Paul starts with pride, then he goes on to discontentment is the root of that. So causes of discontentment. What are the causes in your life or in, in your friend's life? We'll call it your friend's life. That makes it easier. What, what are some of the causes of discontentment? You just said that uh, the root was pride. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that be the cause? It's sure. The yep. But what, what is the practical cause? Because you're, you're, you're getting to the root of it, and that's great. You're right. That's the, that's the good Bible answer. I'm just imitating you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the fourth and fifth grade answer to every question is Jesus, and that's good. Yeah. It is. But, but what, what, what are the causes in our lives, the practical, you know, stim, the catalyst? I used that word last week because it, it catalyzes, it causes, uh, I don't want to confuse you with my vast knowledge of science, but the catalyst that causes something to happen, right? What, what, are the, what are the catalysts for discontentment? One of the things is when you compare yourself. Yeah. I think that's a huge one. Because if Rockefeller didn't know how much everybody else had, and he had his amount, he wouldn't be able to compare it to say, I just need one more dollar. But um, yeah, comparison is a huge one that brings us to discontentment. Yeah, one of the one of the one of the in, in marketing, you've got uh, mar- mar- good marketers are looking for ways to convince you that you desperately need something you've never had before. Absolutely. You see that when kids watch watch the uh, the ads, the toy ads on TV right before Christmas. I can't believe I've survived this long without that. Whatever it is, I, I actually respond the same way when I see them, <laughs> honestly. But you know, they're, they're, so that's one is is convincing you that you need something desperately. It's it's, it's it's generating this discontentment in your heart. Another one is is convincing you that your neighbor has this already, you need to now get it too. And, and bigger and better, frankly. Keeping up with the Joneses is right. still a comparison. It's a comparison, absolutely. That's why I say that discontentment is a disease of relativity. It's all about, it's relative to your neighbor, absolutely. What, what else can cause discontentment? Unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. We expect something, it, yeah. and it may be a good thing, right? It, it doesn't have to be a bad expectation. Right. But we, 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 our expectation is for our children to obey. Our children to obey. And when they don't, what do we do? When that expectation becomes a 
a, a, a sense of a right or a demand. Yeah, and we, angry or bitter. we don't get it. We become angry. We become bitter. Absolutely. What about financial issues? We're, we're struggling to pay those bills and, and discontentment. We don't have the money that we, we think we should have. We, don't, we look at the way our neighbor drives. They've got this nice new car and I'm driving this jalopy. And, and I just want the nice new car. It's not asking that much, right? And I become discontent with it. Illness and injury. We've already talked about that. Undesired singleness. I mentioned that. Memories of a sinful past. I think that's huge. My, my, my dissertation was on, was on discontentment and it specifically focused on the, the memories of a sinful past and the effects of, of our past sin on our discontentment today and how we become discontent with the consequences of our sin. We'll talk more about that. But uh, memories of sinful past, job hardships, having a boss that's just a jerk that doesn't like you. Can I use jerk here? I got in trouble for using the word jerk in the children's co-op. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I should not use that word at all. But difficult people, difficult people <laughs> in our work. Opposition from unbelievers, right? That can cause discontentment. Even rejection from believers and I would subject that rejection rejection from believers is, is more painful than, than rejection from unbelievers because we spend our lives laboring alongside and, 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 and struggling to love Right. I'll use the phrase our, our brothers and sisters in Christ but sometimes the only connection we have with them is our salvation is Christ and so we have nothing in common with them otherwise and so it can be a battle sometimes to love those but we're called to and so we do we work hard at it we try. and that's good and, and so we have this family that's bonded tight and then somebody hurts us in the family and that wound is so much more devastating than a, than a wound of an enemy right but I I'm not getting that one you said about the sins of the past. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that on your face. Yeah. Can you give like an example? Yeah, sure. So you're, you're we'll, we'll talk about Michael, but we're not talking about Michael. Okay. You're, M- Michael had a, a, a long and, and a, an extensive history with alcohol and drug abuse. Okay. And you were married to him, and he was abusive, verbally abusive, maybe even hit you a few times. And his relationship with you was difficult, and you endured much suffering through that marriage. Michael comes to the place where he's saved by God. God saved him. He's he's miraculously delivered of of the drug and alcohol abuse, and and, and he is now in a place where he he still struggles with anger, but he's he's better than he was, certainly, and he's growing in godliness. But his relationship with you has been fractured as a result of it. His children, he's estranged from his children because all they saw was this abusive drunk. And so the consequences for our sin, and we'll talk more about consequences next week, the consequences for our sin that God brings into our life are painful. It hurts. But he has to recognize that he he brought this on Mm -hmm. and God is using those things to grow him and to grow you. But the rea- and so th- there are consequences for sin that, that have been repented of. We- we've repented. We've sought God's forgiveness. He sought your forgiveness. Your relationship is good, but there's still well, it's not good. It's growing, but it's it's, it's fractured in some way. That's what I'm referring to. That's what you're referring to. Got it. Yep. We are now no longer under God's condemnation. It's Romans eight, right? Romans eight verse one. But God still uses consequences to shape and discipline His children. God uses all things for our good if we're saved, and, and we see that in Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation, he says, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, he says, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, but what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Ouch, right? Besides this, he says, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for what? For our good. That we may share his holiness. 
for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it I love that picture the peaceful fruit of righteousness God makes us a promise in that passage he's making us a sweet promise he says we're going to experience discipline because of our sin that, that, and, and, and consequences of our sin right that's fractured relationships for example but then he makes this wonderful promise in verse 11 he says that our hearts will know peace as we grow in righteousness peace is an absence of discontentment it's, it's that trust in God's sovereign purposes that we've been talking about it's Psalm 4 verse 8 that says that in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord have made me dwell in safety that's David's resting in God's sovereign care I love that verse in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety discontentment then grows in our hearts when we find ourselves unable to reconcile our own past actions with our genuine repentance that was the point of my dissertation was that it grows in our hearts when we, we, we struggle to reconcile past sin with genuine repentance we've repented of the sin but there are still consequences for our sin we know that as parents right your child might repent of their sin and seek your forgiveness but there are still consequences and so consequences for sin can build upon and exacerbate feelings of discontentment and when that happens and it's not checked we lash out in anger toward others toward ourselves toward God or all three so it's really from 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 8 about letting go of those things you know numbering the record wrong if you truly love someone you really have to let those things go Mm -hmm. and that's hard because we have memories and so I I see that as um, lacking a component of love Mm -hmm. when you allow that to work and play out in your life but it's hard yeah because he was a drunk for a long time, and that's the heavy lifting of the gospel, isn't it? Is, is, yeah. is it seems sounds really easy, you know? You've, you've repented, you know? It was genuine, it was sincere, but there's still all this pain, all this hurt, all this damage that's been done that we have to work through mm-hmm. and, and and figure out. And uh, you know, Lord willing, that will happen, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And, and and those are that's tragic. It's tragic, especially in Christian families when that damage is never resolved, mm-hmm. and and we allow those those little hurts to compound upon the big hurts yeah. and cause conflict and fractures in relationships it's just really sad but the other person that has done the wrong is so stuck in it that they and ultimately it comes down to trusting God and Mm. sovereignty because he allowed those things right of course allowed those circumstances to happen and that sin to happen but trusting that God can use that sin for good but also knowing that there's consequences but those consequences are good too because it's meant to bring you to him rather than away from him yeah it's like the world that scratches their head and wonders what's wrong with us when we when we thank God for suffering and trials because we know that those suffering that suffering those trials are going to grow us in godliness and that's ultimately what we want as Christians is to grow in godliness and if that's what God's mechanism is for that then we praise God thank him for that but that's really hard to do because we're also fall, you know we're, we're also living in a fallen world and, and it hurts and it's painful but we recognize especially afterwards that God was so kind to bring us through that difficult time God was so kind to bring us through that difficult situation so that we could grow but the unbelievers have no point of reference for that no. they just think we're crazy when we, when we say you know what this is good this is, this is God God gives God takes away blessed be the name of the Lord he gives and he takes away can, can painful can sinful experiences in the past be beneficial for us today yeah of course yes how come how can how can pain how can sinful experiences in the past benefit us today they humble us they humble us yes what else they grow us closer to him too Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're supposed to not focus on whatever that painful thing that someone did to us rather than focusing on that we're supposed to focus on him and be thankful for having given us that experience to grow you know for our own benefit for mm-hmm. our own good so so if we focus on that instead on him and what he did for us mm-hmm. we can look at that person with different eyes with god's eyes yeah 
Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. It can also serve, serve as a warning, right? Again, for the future. Yeah. You know, an alco- somebody who, I, I don't like the word alcoholic, forgive me, a drunk, that's the biblical word, a, somebody who struggles, struggles with drunkenness, you know, they, 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 are, they, they repent, they're, they're delivered from that, from that sin. Um, it's, a, it's a warning, you know, don't walk your dog past the pub. Go around a different way because you you could you know have a, have a weakness in that area. Maybe you should avoid that, you know, um, because we, we we know that that we, we we have a sin nature and we're you know if, if we're vulnerable to it before, then maybe again doesn't doesn't hurt to make sure that we don't test test our environment, test our, our you know test test that and see how how good we are, how strong we are. Um, serves as a warning against sin. It reminds us, says Vody Balcom, that we're in need of God's redeeming grace every single day that we, we yes we did that we were we were lost in that sin and and yet God was so kind to pull us out of it to take us out of it to redeem us but that past sin will have consequences and and those consequences today uh, and and the and the the bad choices the simple choices we made can have an effect on us today so Ephesians 1 7 says in Christ we have a redemption through his blood through the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace Jesus paid the price for our sin we're no longer under condemnation because of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice but our past sins certainly if we're unrepentant but also if we're repentant and turn, we've turned to the Lord, Lord will frequently have consequences in the present and those consequences can lead us to dis, discontentment can lead us to anger can lead us to bitterness can dive us into a whole new world of sin and that was kind of the point of of, um, of where I was going with that so um, we're out of time so I want to think about maybe in, in, you know, in the week to come how your past could impact your present how it could impact it negatively and how it could impact it positively too past sin past, past, uh, past sin we'll call it what it is I was going to say mistakes but that would be sin past sin how has that impacted you in the past and how has that changed you and impact how does that go on, continue to impact you today so let me, let me pray for us and, and we'll, be, we'll be dismissed Father thank you again for your word thank you for uh, the examples you give us in scripture that serve as a warning and serve as an exhortation a, a positively and negatively that uh, examples that that spur us on to godliness as we think of Naomi and, and her bitterness her bitterness as she turned against you blamed you for leading her in a, in a bitter direction that you had turned against her uh, and yet we know that you had not turned against her that you were disciplining her for her good and thank you for her and thank you for the testimony she, she can give us as uh, uh, somebody who was able to turn that around and, and, and please you and honor you in, in those things Father I just pray as we, as we sit under Pastor Phil's preaching this morning that you would bless our time that we would hear what you have for us that we may apply it and we may love you more for it and uh, help us Lord with our discontentment because we all struggle with it we all wrestle with it and we, all, we know that you are not pleased by it and so we, we give that to you and we ask in our own individual circumstances that you would uh, sovereignly work through, tenderly work through, and, and lovingly work through those things for our good and ultimately for your glory. So I pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.